Data is definitely part of our world as teachers who are constantly looking at data so that we can identify what's working well, what's not, our practice impacting student outcomes. And so we're looking for those trends in data so we can help refine and develop our best practices. Our topic today is demystifying computational thinking. Tech Talk for Teachers is brought to you by AVID.org. AVID believes we can empower students by helping them become problem solvers. To learn more about AVID, visit AVID.org. Tech Talk for Teachers. You want to practice? Tech Talk for Teachers. The podcast where teachers discuss how technology can positively transform teaching and learning. I'm Rena Clark. I'm Paul Beckerman. And I'm Pam Beckerman. We are digital learning specialists. And we're here to share actionable teaching strategies for remote, face-to-face, and blended learning. Education Education is our passport to the future. Our quote today is from Tara Swart, a neuroscientist and best-selling author of The Source. She says, the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those who can't code, but those who don't solve problems using a combination of computational thinking with empathy, intuition, and creativity. Hmm. Those are very human attributes, empathy, intuition, and creativity, and they definitely enhance problem solving in a way that computers can't. And I think it's one of the reasons that it's so important that we teach those soft skills or success skills because they're increasingly in demand. I mean, the computer's automating those jobs that don't have those human skills, but we need those. I was thinking about as we started getting more and more computers in school, I had teachers ask me, do you think at some point we're going to get replaced by computers? And I'm like, no, they're going to certainly make us more efficient and effective, but they can't replace the human skills or our human connection to the job, empathy, relationships that we build with students. And I think this pandemic has kind of proved that, right? We definitely have some advantages with computers, but we need those human skills. So it's so important we develop those in our students too. For sure. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have two thoughts about that because automation requires computer programming and programmers are human and we need to develop those thinking skills of our students to become maybe programmers. But thinking about those 21st century skills and empathy and so much more, as we're thinking about things being automated, we also need to think about social justice and what are some of the biases our programmers are bringing with them. So if we think about AI, so artificial intelligence, there's been lots and lots of articles. It's actually been a very hot, hot topic because it's perpetuating unconscious bias. And I was just looking up, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, most of those people are still white males who are creating the programs. So there's still that unconscious bias. And it's per- actually what's crazy is that AI is actually perpetuating bias on an unprecedented scale and in record time, more than ever before. So it's actually creating some ways more of a problem. So just thinking back to that quote, how important is this idea of empathy and inclusivity and all these other skills? Because this isn't going to go away. So we don't want to perpetuate a problem. We want to solve a problem. And I never thought of it in those terms before that, the coders bring their bias to the to the program, and then the program amplifies that bias out to the people who are using the program. That's really insightful. Yeah, I was thinking, I don't remember if it was Alexa. I'm trying to think one of those voice-activated things. They only tested it with male voices. So then when they, they had it, trials with female 
voices, it wouldn't work because they never even thought about that in when they were designing it because they didn't, none of them were using that voice. So thinking of accents and languages and I think companies are doing better, but it's all those little things with unconscious bias. <laughs> yeah. And they talk about the facial recognition too, and how it doesn't recognize people of color accurately. You wonder if that's part of that same, you know, implicit bias coming out. I mean, this is going to be a whole nother episode, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's write so, it down. I know. I know today, though, we're hoping to really dig into demystifying computational thinking um, and think about ways that may integrate some of those computational thinking skills into maybe our classroom. So we're going to be talking today about abstraction, algorithms, decomposition, and patterns or pattern recognition. And our listeners out there, you're probably already doing all of it, some of it, all of these components of computational thinking, you might just not be identifying them or calling them out. So when we are engaging in these foundational computational thinking skills, we're also engaging in problem solving and critical thinking, which once again, you're probably already doing. So I'm going to have Paul kind of launch us off, and I'm going to have him start by talking a little bit more about abstraction. Before I do, do you know why you should always try to solve your problems while standing? <laughs> I'm sure we're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> it helps you think on your feet. <laughs> and you know why you should always trust chemists to solve your problems? Mm, no idea. They always have the solution. There we go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, on that note, let's dive into abstraction. <laughs> and really, I had to solve a little problem about abstraction because... As a former English teacher, I kept thinking of abstraction as an adjective. I kept thinking of things that are abstract and something that maybe is not clear to me or physical or concrete. And I didn't understand it in terms of computational thinking until I realized it's a verb in this case. And by abstraction, we mean extracting something or removing something. And what we're really doing is we're pulling out the essence of a problem. We're keeping it to its simplest form. It's like we're zooming in, taking a look at it, and then abstracting that core element. And that really helped me understand what abstraction was in this case. And it really is about keeping it simple and simplifying a problem by narrowing it down just to that relevant and important portion of detail that's important to solving the problem. You kind of clear the clutter so that you can solve the problem. Strip away all those specifics to the set of problem. And then if you do that, that can be applied to other problems that are very similar because you're down to the essence of it. And that's abstraction. So it's like, what's the main idea in this story? You know, English teachers are doing that. You're stripping it down to the essence of the problem. Or um, you're writing a song. Well, strip it down to just the structure, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. That's the essence of what that song is composed of. You know, we're really breaking it down. Pam and Rena, can you think of other abstractions either that you've experienced or that you can think of in a school setting? Yeah, actually, right now we're developing a K-8 online school. We already have a 9-12, but we're in the process of hiring candidates for that. And so reviewing all of their skills, licenses, and experiences across all those documents to pull people in and even during the interviews really does require us to extract abstract to their essential core skills that we're looking for. And then as part of that work too, because we're going to be doing cross grade levels, we're looking at curriculum. So we're really trying to extract the essential power enduring those standards 
from all of those standards, we can focus in on those key ones and pull those out. I was just thinking as you're saying that so many teachers I've worked with this year have been doing that because we literally they've had students for two hours and 15 minutes. So when they're looking at curriculum content, we talk about power standards. They really have to pull out what is the most important part. And that's what we're going to do. Another way of thinking about this is you've, you've probably heard about abstract art. So it was interesting as I was reading deeper about this. So there's a great book called Sparks of Genius. It's a really interesting read if you have time. And they talk about the essence of abstraction is being able to single out one feature, which in contrast to other properties is considered to be particularly important, which is essentially what we've been saying. So I love thinking, like I said, about abstract art. And one of my favorite artists is Picasso, who's very well known for his abstract art. And often his art does not represent whole things, but one or another of their less obvious properties. And I know Picasso once said, to arrive at abstraction, it is always necessary to begin with a concrete reality. You must always start with something. Afterward, you can remove all traces of reality. And if you have time, it's hard to describe this in a podcast, but go on the internet and look up, I believe, uh, the bowl. And it actually shows where he starts with like, his first image is like a real bowl and it goes through kind of 12 stages. And the final is the actual painting he does called the bowl. And you're just left with lines, but he was just abstracting out edges. So when you think abstract art, just looks really simple and like these lines, it's actually way more complex and you might have more appreciation for the art. <laughs> I've seen that picture and it was actually part of a curriculum study that we did. And we had the 12 pictures and like one was like a totally realistic drawing of a bull, looked like a photograph almost all the way down to a stick figure. And the activity was to ask the kids, which one's the finished product? And they always say the realistic one, but actually it's the opposite. It's the essence of the bull, the stick figure. It's pretty, pretty cool. Another, and we're going to talk about this. I should bring it up later in some of the other stages. There's this great picture book called Zoom. It's just called Zoom and it's just pictures. And it's kind of one of these picture books where it starts zoomed in. And then the next picture, it's like that picture was in another picture, which is in it. And it totally zooms out. And a great idea is actually you can take that book I know this might sound terrible, but cut it up, cut the pages out. <laughs> ouch, ouch. I know, I know. And then, and then as an activity, whether it's adults or students, I have them put them in order. Oh. So it's really interesting to think about it. That's cool. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, the next pillar is algorithms. And um, put simply, it's basically the steps in the sequencing to solve problems. So it's that well-defined series of steps to achieve that outcome. Algorithm is often, you know, associated with programming and computer science, but we use it ourselves all the time, every day, like making rest or following the steps in a recipe for supper or whatever, and then playing a song, Paul. I know that you follow steps and series in order to do that. I think in terms of uh, teaching, it helps when I'm teaching research units to use models like the answers model that we have with Avid Open Access that has seven steps that students go through in searching for answers to credible answers to their questions. And certainly, you know, research is way more complex than just seven sequential steps. It's more weaved and nonlinear than that. But having a linear process helps students and helps all of us get through that to achieve those outcomes. So that's one example of how I use it. How about you, Rena or Paul? How are you using algorithms? We use them all the time. It's really the intentionality of like 
as early as pre-K saying, we're using a list of steps to complete a task. And I even have a great dance, but once again, I can't show you over the podcast. It goes, <laughs> oh, I'd like to see that, Rena. You lift your hands up with like steps and then you do a circle, like complete and clap a task. So it's, it, but the thing is calling it out. So even when you're creating like lining up, like this is our algorithm, this is our first step, our second step. And then you can get into more complex things like this is what we repeat. This is a loop. And it really, ties into computer science as well as computational thinking and connects. So later on when they're introduced to those things, it's not scary. You're like, Oh, we do this all the time. We do algorithms all the time. Even in PE. I know I've worked with some PE teachers to do some lessons um, on algorithms, celebratory handshakes. If you look, we love watching some of the videos. Baseball has great handshakes. If you ever do like the YouTube, like, and they're the same. So it's like, what steps are they taking and how do you break it down? And then we actually make the kids write a program for their celebratory handshake. Oh, I bet they have fun. That's awesome. You know, as an English teacher, we tried to break down the really complex things into algorithms for, you know, the step-by-step process, like the writing process. Writing is really complicated, but if you can break it down into that process, it makes more sense for kids. You know, you got the pre-writing, writing, revising, editing, those pieces. Uh, just like breaking down a story, you got the plot structure. You can follow that same art. And Paul's leading us right. Yeah, Paul's leading us right into the next one, which is actually breaking apart. So decomposing. The thing is, algorithms and decomposition really go together. It's almost hard to do one without the other. And abstraction, right? Because you're pulling out the steps. Yes, yes. They they all connect, and we'll talk about patterns as well. But you usually need to decompose a problem before you figure out the algorithms to solve it. So decomposition, once again, is the act of breaking things down into smaller, manageable parts. And that's another key pillar. So I know recently I put an article in Avid Open Access called Put the Pieces Together, Completing the Puzzle with Computational Thinking. And I talked about, I literally had never tried putting together a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle before because it completely overwhelmed me. And you lived to tell about it. (laughs) It was honestly because I had taken this amazing course on computational thinking at Michigan State and I used it. So I was like, oh. I need, I, I didn't feel overwhelmed like I have in the, it's like, oh, first I'm going to break this down into different parts and I'm going to pull out what's important. What, what in the picture can I utilize to help me? And then break it down into different sections and starting with, you know, whether it's the edge, whatever you decide to do. But once I've kind of broken it down, then I had an algorithm of the list of things I needed to do to complete the task of putting the puzzle together. That's my simplified version of the article. But there's so many different ways we can think about decomposing. Think back to our youngest learners, like individual letter sounds. That is really decomposing down to the basics of literacy. In math, finding a group of 10, we call it like friendly numbers, find a group of 10, and then combining them together. Um, Specific parts of the scientific process that we might do, the engineering design process. So there's so many examples, but back to what Paul said, break the problem apart and then create an algorithm as well. Yeah, I think as teachers, we definitely are doing this all the time, right? When we do instructional design, we do a task analysis. We really look at what students need to do, and then we try to break it into those smaller digestible steps. Even something as simple as teaching students how to highlight on a computer, that's three steps. Click, hold, drag the mouse. I mean, we break it down to those smaller steps, or that answers model for research, that complex task of researching seven digestible steps really helps. I mean, I think that's our job as teachers. It's that art and science of taking that complex and making it simple. Well, you're saying we abstracted out what was important. We broke it down. And then you had the list of steps to complete. 
Yeah. It all comes together and weaves together. Absolutely. We used to do it in sentence diagramming all the time, right? You break down the sentence into all the parts. Where's the noun? Where's the verb? Break it down. I always remember this, you know, decomposition, like really it's decomposing. Something dies, it decomposes, right? It breaks down into little bits until it becomes earth again, but it breaks apart. All right. One more piece, right? Patterns. A big one. It is a big one. Finding similarities, differences, and trends, the patterns within the problem. Like what patterns do the different problems have? What patterns transcend specific problems and can be applied to other problems? I mean, that's kind of how you you take it. And I think of um, playing guitar. When I first started, it was overwhelming to think about knowing where to put my fingers on that fretboard, which notes I could play with which songs to play a solo, until I realized if you know the scale, it's the same scale for every key. If I'm in G, I play it here. If it's on in C, I just move it up the fretboard and I play the exact same pattern, but I start in a different place. Finding that pattern totally helped me make sense out of things. I'm going to kind of tie this back into where this fits in a little bit with computer science. So we think about, it's insane. We live in a data-rich world and data is currently just being abstracted at an unfathomable rate. And within these data are patterns. And with the human eye, they're almost impossible to detect some of them because there's so much. And that's where computers really help. However, human created patterns are used to drive what the computer is doing and looking for. So it's kind of interesting. So a great example is using computers to create visualizations of data. So if you think, I know I use spreadsheets all the time, or maybe you have students use spreadsheets, doesn't matter what form, whether you're using the Microsoft version or Google, but have you ever like put in data and then there's a magical little button and all of a sudden you have these graphs and diagrams. And what's interesting, when data is presented in different formats, you get different things from it. So if you think about making generalizations based on data or finding patterns. It's interesting. So this is where we talk about students and it can be young students even asking each other, like what's their favorite color or whatnot, but presenting that data in different formats might allow students to actually identify different patterns and then be able to use it in different ways. So it's just like another interesting way to think about pattern recognition. Think about like, I swear I'm like talking and the next thing I know my phone, there's like an ad about the thing I was just talking about. If you're on your phone or whatever device companies are collecting data, data is big, big business and pattern recognition within data is big business right now. So it's really interesting. Big data is big business. Yeah, it is. And, you know, data is definitely part of our world as teachers too, right? We're constantly looking at data so that we can identify what's working well, what's not, our practice impacting student outcomes. And so we're looking for those trends in data so we can help refine and develop our best practices. When you were talking, Rena, it made me think about a unit that I did with my eighth grade science students where they all year were collecting data about the weather. They were writing down the dew point, the temperature, the wind, and all of this information all year in the spring of the year that was all in a spreadsheet. And then they would sort and filter and conditional format, and they were looking for the patterns very much so. So that instead of us telling them what the patterns or connections are, they were discovering it using their own data. It was pretty powerful. We even think with teachers, so we sit down, whether it's in our PLC or not, and we have data, but we have to make sense of that data. We have to find patterns, pull out, and then went back again when it's presented in different formats. You might have different things discovered. So this is definitely applicable for both students, 
both teachers. And I know they're using it up in like district level and pulling it even higher up from test scores and whatnot. We won't get into that or our feelings about that. But there's lots of different ways that it comes into play. All right. I think it is time for our tech toolkit. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. What's in the toolkit? What? What is in the toolkit? What's in the toolkit? Check it out. So when we talk about computational thinking, what are some suggested tools to add to the teaching toolkit that can support our students learning those skills? So one I'm going to talk about is called PolyUp, and it's it's really interesting, and it specifically even calls out computational thinking. It's free. You can log in through Google, create a class, and give students different challenges. They're like these math machines, and they're using computational thinking to create these math machines. And you can even try it as an adult. It took me a while to get the hang of it, but it was really interesting. And once again, I think your students will enjoy it, and it works for all ages. There's another little character in there named Polly that kind of runs the machine. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. so. He is the machine. And Polly, I mean, that's a great name right there. <laughs> <laughs> named after you, Paul. <laughs> oh, really? Wow, oh, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Now, I think of, um, I'm thinking of music again. I'm going to stay on my music theme. I think of Soundtrap. Soundtrap is a free online production studio, but it's a great place for kids to solve problems. And the problem or the task really is composing a song. And they need to use all of these computational thinking pieces in there. You know, they break it down into parts. They need to focus on each part and create them. Maybe they need to make a drum pattern. And there you have patterns in there. They can program out the drum pattern. They need a chord progression, which is also a pattern. They need to abstract lyrics from their big topic to get down to the essence of what they want to say. It's really a great platform for practicing some of these things that are really computer programming skills, but in an artistic format. And with music, there's so many amazing things that you, a lot of students need those digital skills in order to make it in the music industry. And then a favorite of my students um, was Scratch, which is eight and up and Scratch Scratch Junior for the youngers. But from MIT, it's a free block um, based coding program and students can code their or program their own interactive stories, games and animations. They loved it so much. They did it outside of class. They did it all the way through the high school. And so it's a great introduction, but yeah, students really enjoy that one. And I'm going to put in there for honorable mention. We also have code.org, which many of you probably have heard of, and then also make code, Microsoft's make code as well. Hey, that was two honorable mentions. Two honorable (laughs) mentions. Bonus. Worth mentioning. Definitely. So that brings us to our one thing. It's time for that one thing. So thinking about computational thinking and the demystifying of computational thinking, what is your one big takeaway? My one big thing (laughs) is that one way that we can demystify uh, computational thinking is to first recognize as teachers how we're already using it in our lives so that we feel more confident about the concepts ourselves and then being intentional about calling those out to our students so that they can get also more comfortable and confident as they apply the process to more complex situations like computer programming. And I think about problem solving and simplifying. It's about those two things. We do them every day, break down the problem to its simplest form. I'm reminded of the statement that intelligence isn't making simple things sound complex and impressive. It's the opposite. It's making complex things seem very simple. 
Which brings me to my <laughs> one big thing. It's almost, <laughs> it's embedded. But I was thinking computational thinking actually provides a process and a way for all of us to problem solve. So I know sometimes when I go into something, I feel overwhelmed, but computational thinking gives me, it's almost like an algorithm in a way to follow, but it allows everyone to have a way to, in essence, think like a computer, but we have more empathy, other components that are a really humanized way of doing it in order to be problem solvers. And if we provide that at a very young age, because it sounds scary, that word computational thinking is a very big word. And you're like, oh, that sounds like only you can do it if you're a computer programmer or you have all this background. But I mean, little kids can do it as well. And back to what I think Pam said, making those clear connections that, oh, you are doing an algorithm or, wow, I like how you decompose that problem down so that it was easier for you. Using those words intentionally, just it makes it understandable and demystifies it. Absolutely. In fact, our podcast requires a bit of computational thinking every week. <laughs> we abstract, right? We get down to the essence of the episode. What's our theme or one main idea? We have an algorithm of sorts. We have a certain format we follow to guide our conversations each week. We have a quote, main conversation, our toolkit, our one thing. We do decompose topics. Essentially, we break down each episode into a manageable part, and then we try to really focus in on that, try to simplify that complex topic so it's understandable. And there is a pattern. While our conversations are totally different every week, and sometimes my jokes are worse than the other ones, there is a pattern to the episode, including ending by thanking all of you for listening once again and hoping you develop a pattern of coming back every week for another episode of Tech Talk for Teachers. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk for Teachers. We invite you to visit us at avidopenaccess.org where you can explore tech tips, grab-and-go lessons, templates, and videos that will help bring remote learning to life. We want to hear from you, so let's continue the conversation. Join us for the first and third Tuesday of the month at 7.30 p.m. Central for a live chat on Twitter, where we will facilitate conversations related to remote, face-to-face, -face, and blended learning. Look for hashtag Tech Talk for Teachers. We will discuss your responses on future podcasts. We'll be back here next Wednesday for a fresh episode of Tech Talk for Teachers. And remember, go forth and be awesome. Thanks for all you do. You make a difference.